episode 134. Today, I talk about stepwise behavior change with Melissa McCool, co-founder and CEO of Stellicare. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Every care setting wrestles with their approximately 20% of patients who will do what they do or not do what they're not doing for many reasons beyond a need for a few more educational resources. And that matters because those 20% of patients who are not adherent could be the difference between achieving value-based goals and not achieving value-based goals. Unfortunately, as we all know well, the reasons behind why someone does or doesn't do something are tough to figure out and even tougher to address. Today, I speak with Melissa McCool from Stellicare. She offers an in-clinic, stepwise approach to move patients ever closer to the elusive goal of treatment adherence. My name is Stacy Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Hey, if you could do me a favor, I'd really appreciate it. Could you kindly go to iTunes, where you can rate and review podcasts? We have so many listeners and very few ratings and reviews, so I'd really appreciate your help there. Thanks so much. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Melissa. Thank you so much. It's so nice to be here. I heard someone talking about patient engagement recently, which is one of the things that you have spent the last number of years engaged with. Huh, that was, see how many times I can use engagement in a sentence. And she was talking about how most clinicians think that the reason that non-adherent patients don't follow advice is because either they don't understand the information or mm-hmm. they don't know it to begin with. Yeah, actually, I would disagree with that. In healthcare, we tend to think that if someone is not doing what they quote unquote should be doing, it's because they don't have the education or the proper information. In a way, if all you have is a hammer, everything is a nail. We basically think that if someone's not doing, if they're not checking their sugars, it means that a nurse hasn't properly educated them on the importance of checking their sugars. When in fact, what we have found is that Oftentimes, it's really the emotion that's driving the behavior. What I mean by that is emotions like fear, for instance, when people are afraid of something, they usually avoid it. And that's just what happens. When people have shame, they hide. And so what happens in the medical setting is that if someone's afraid of something, And the fear will override other interests, meaning I do want to be healthy, it'll override it. And so the person just won't take the steps that they should be taking. And you can lie to yourself about why you're doing it, but at the end of the day, they're not doing it. Give me an example of that. So if I'm not taking my diabetes medication, what am I fearing? They might be fearing needle sticks. They might be scared of what it means to have diabetes. And so if you actually do the finger sticks, it's a day-to-day reminder 
or actually many times a day reminder that you have this chronic disease. Let, let me give you an example what a, in uh, that we've noticed. So something that happens with dialysis patients is that they have catheters and they try to get most patients to get a fistula because it's safer and they actually are able to get a better clinical outcome and it's less dangerous. But there's a certain subset of patients who don't get fistulas. And so historically, you know, it's people, again, assume that it's because they don't have education. They don't know that they'll get a better KT over V, which is a way they measure how well they're kind of clearing out all the toxins because they don't have that education. But what we found, and again, using this knowledge that it could be the emotion that's driving the behavior, what we found is that when we actually go and address the fear, meaning we use interventions that actually help them overcome their fear then they are able to get the fistula. What does that look like, the education? I'm assuming that you're not just simply telling them in a very educational type tone of voice, hey, you're going to get a better result if you do it this way. No, no, we're not doing that at all. So what we're doing a lot of times, we'll start by sort of saying, you know, something we found here is that, you know, a lot of people, it's a little stressful getting a fistula. And we find that sometimes people get nervous about it and just normalizing it. So we won't make them admit that they're afraid. We'll just normalize it and say, and if that's happening, we understand because we see that. And, you know, we're wondering if, you know, this is one thing that we have found really helps a lot of other patients. And, you know, would you be interested in me showing you this? And, the, you know, and it again, so some of it could be breaking it down into tiny little pieces. It could be teaching them a couple kind of relaxation techniques. There's a couple different ways of going about it. And, and sometimes they'll say, yeah, you know what? I actually, I really don't like needles. This happened last week, actually. That's actually why the, the patient had been avoiding a couple different things. This was a social worker doing it with the patient, was able to kind of show them, use some visualization techniques right there in the medical setting, took a, maybe five minutes and was able to help the patient. And the patient is now taking the steps to get the fistula. This just sounds like it could get very messy very fast. You know, if you've got education, for example, we can all say everyone needs information about health and wellness. Kind of we can very easily, I'm not going to say effectively, I'm going to say easily <laughs> create one bit of information about health and wellness and now we're done. What you're seeming to imply is that the first thing that you have to do is figure out what this patient is dealing with, number one. And then number two, it kind of sounds like that depending on what that person is dealing with, that there are more effective and less effective ways to address those underlying, what do we call them? Emotions, I think you said. Yeah, well, or if the emotions driving the behavior. So I, I think a good way of, of looking at it, Stacey, is that for I think the 80-20 rule works generally. So for 80% of the patients, just giving them the information will solve the problem. So just simply saying, for instance, going back to diabetes, 
if you have this, you know, you need to check your sugars and here's how you do it and here's the education, that'll work with most people. So what I'm suggesting is that with the 20% where the usual approach is clearly not working, meaning we've tried it repeatedly and we're still getting the same result, then it's time to switch gears and consider that maybe it's not for lack of education, but that there's something else driving the behavior. And what we are finding again is that it could be, often it is mood related. So another example, for instance, if you don't mind um, me switching gears a little bit is there's a case that I'm, I heard about a couple weeks ago with a, a guy, early fifties, hypertensive, having cardiac problems, ended up in the hospital, hadn't been taking medications that he needed. And the nurse navigator started working with this patient and found out that actually he was just not doing well in general and was having some problems at work and was worrying a lot about his new boss and worrying that he was going to get laid off and all the kind of potential financial problems. And that the healthcare was just sort of, that was an afterthought. He just was so preoccupied and worried about this other stuff going on that a lot of things were not working out in his life. Healthcare was just one of them. So this nurse navigator just literally went and spent 15 minutes with him and taught him a couple little tools to manage his thoughts a little bit better. And that was it. And that he basically said that that was super helpful just on a moment to moment basis, having permission to sort of not have to think the thought constantly and ruminate about this worry and just to give him some really concrete tools to deal with this thought. And then he started feeling better and started taking the medications afterwards. But the healthcare is seen more as a symptom. It's not necessarily the underlying problem per se, but not taking the medications could be a symptom of something else. I'm going to make an assumption here that, you know, you were talking about the 80-20 rule or the Pareto principle, that 80% are going to be fine with the standardized approach, and then it's going to be 20% that aren't. I'm going to assume, you know, they always say that depending on what you look at, you know, it's like 5% of of the people are responsible for 50% of the cost. So I'm going to draw the assumption that generally speaking, the 20% non-adherent patients are driving maybe 80% of the cost. So it's well <laughs> worth our time not to be like, yeah, well, you know, we'll just go with what we right. got. I think that now with value-based care, that 20% becomes even more important that in a fee-for-service model, maybe it's okay. But, you know, when you have at-risk kind of payment models and suddenly everyone does care a lot more about the 20%. So the question becomes, how do we help the 20%? And what I've found is that what works for the 80% doesn't necessarily work with the 20%. Nothing for nothing, but in a fee-for-service model, that 15 minutes of counseling that you were just talking about wouldn't be reimbursed. So it likely wouldn't happen. Is there a methodology by which you figure out what the underlying emotion is that is causing the non-adherence so that you can address it? Or is it basically a matter of 
giving the staff some pretty deep training so that they can basically do a little psychological consultation on the fly? A couple things. So what we learned to do is to teach the on-site medical staff some quick interventions that they can use for all sorts of problems. Non-adherence is one of the problems. Other problems are, you know, depression and anxiety and pain and substance abuse. So really it's meant to help any kind of problem that they see in the medical setting. And it all really started, I created the, the clinical program myself because I had patients who were very depressed who would not go to outpatient psychiatry. And I felt so bad for them that I wanted to do something. And so I basically adapted interventions and approaches that work in the mental health world. I adapted them so that they could be used in the medical setting, meaning that you could go sit in the ER, in the clinic, you could go spend five to 10 to 15 minutes with the patient and actually give them a strategy, some bit of education or information that would really help move the ball forward. So it wasn't, we weren't doing therapy, but it was really concrete strategies to address a specific problematic behavior. It's like, you know, that book, The One Minute Manager? So it's kind of like the one minute mental health intervention. Yeah, yeah, kind of. You, I, it might be more than a minute. We could say five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what are you doing? Did you just kind of take? I mean, because obviously this is what you have your expertise in. Did you just kind of try to codify? What happened was, is I again, I see. So I see these patients. They're not doing well. I feel bad. I keep referring them to go see a therapist, to outpatient psychiatry. They don't go. So I do a little research. There's tons of literature on the problem of depression and very few articles on the solution. Now, this was back in 2009. But there were a couple studies that said cognitive behavioral therapy worked. So I go, I learn some CBT and I try to use CBT in the medical setting. And, but what I found is that you don't get 50 minutes and you get what you get, meaning you have to, if you get five, 10 minutes with the patient, you use it. There's, you're not going to be able to pull them back and do a session. And quite frankly, I didn't have time or interest in doing therapy with them. So what I did though, is I, I found these like cool interventions that combined with mindfulness, combined with solution-focused therapy, just kind of a mishmash, actually, of different things. And I started playing with them, and then I, it just started working. But here's the important thing, Stacey. What I did is that I didn't focus on changing what I thought the patient needed to change. I asked the patient what they wanted to work on. And then that was the content, and I would just teach them these little coping tools. Not adherence is a great example. We have patients who come in and they're not taking their medications. They're not coming to their treatments. And so the medical staff, we think, oh, you need to work on this. You need to work on checking your sugars. But if you go and you try to talk to the patient about checking their sugars, especially with that 20% who doesn't check their sugars, inadvertently you start shaming them and they start dodging you and avoiding you. 
we found that doesn't work. So when we work on adherence, we actually really never even talk about the adherence unless the patient wants to talk about it. What we do is we talk about what the patient wants to talk about. Then we teach them these little tools which helps them do better in their life, and then the adherence just starts to resolve. Give me an example of in that five minutes that you have, how does that conversation start? Yeah. So where it starts is, and again, it depends on what you're noticing. So let's go back to my patients who, and you see this a lot in the medical setting where they are you suspect they're bummed out or they're, you know, it looks like they're depressed. And now we have a lot of information with depression because they do screeners. So then the first thing you'd say is like, hey, you know, it looks like you've been going through a hard time. We try not to use like, oh, you're depressed or oh, you have it because we're not diagnosing anything. Oh, you've just been, we're always normalizing because nobody likes to feel like there's something wrong with them at their core. And quite honestly, I actually think that's why people don't get help for mental health issues is because we say, oh, the mentally ill, who wants to be mentally ill? You know, if you're just having some problems, like you're the guy who isn't, you know, taking his hypertensives because he's worried about his boss, that guy doesn't want to feel like, well, I'm mentally ill. So that's actually a barrier I, I find to getting people help for their emotional struggles. So what we say is like, hey, you're going through a hard time. I totally get it. We've all been there. You know what? Let me ask you a little bit more about like, just tell me which part of it is bothering you the most. Well, I can't fall asleep at night. Oh, really? Yeah, I can't fall asleep at night because I find myself worried that my boss is going to fire me. Okay. Do you want me to show you a couple things that might help you? I, I have something that's helped some other patients. Sure. No problem. Bang. And then we teach them one of the interventions. And you found that by teaching a patient mindfulness or just ways to get themselves a little bit less stressed out, that adherence improves. Yes. Yes. And it's not just, it's, I mean, literally, we have so many different types of interventions. There's mindfulness is an element. But, you know, what we found is one approach doesn't work for every patient. So sometimes you have to try a couple different things until you figure out what works for them. But absolutely, because here's what's interesting. And this is where this clinical program comes from. The idea, I think generally we all think, well, I'm not going to try and help them unless I can solve the whole thing. But what I discovered accidentally is that I would approach the patients and say, okay, you told me you can't fall asleep at night. You're worried and you're a little bummed out. Which of those three do you want to focus on? Let's just focus on one right now. And I did this because I only had 10 or 15 minutes. They'd say, okay, I, I want to work on my insomnia. I'd say, great, let's do that. What I found is that when we took a big problem and we took a sliver of the problem and I taught them these little interventions, once the sliver improves, there's a domino effect, and then the bigger problem gets better. It changes their sort of internal narrative, which is why I think the adherence improves. 
sounds like baby steps, just kind of chipping away. StellaCare started out as a training program. You would go in and you would get all of the care extenders and providers and physicians in, in a room and you would train them on these various techniques, you know, like how to risk stratify the population or figure out who needed what. And then what started happening is the algorithm or the the techniques be, started to get a little bit too complex so that someone couldn't necessarily figure out all the if-thens on the fly. So then you kind of moved into the digital space. How does the training program work now in the digital realm? Basically, software that has a couple different pieces to it. So one piece is the training part. And again, what we the training now we put online so that they can read it, they can see what it looks like in action. There's text and there's videos. So they go through the short kind of online training. And then we also do groups like weekly kind of case discussion groups. And we practice some of these little interventions, which they can use or not. And then it's just a simple little, what's the problem that you're seeing? And then they basically put in the problem. And then the algorithm kind of basically spits out what works best for that particular problem. Like for insomnia, we know what generally works for insomnia. If you have a patient who can't fall asleep at night and you have five minutes to spend with them, we can tell you what to do for five minutes based on these thousands of patients that we've used. Same with depression. Like we have these dialed in, meaning if your patient's depressed and you can go spend five minutes, here's what you should do when you only have five minutes that could really help them. But again, with the, uh, the understanding or the idea that the vast majority of patients are not going to be able to go see a therapist. They're not going to be able to go get like high quality mental health. That's just not the reality in our country, unfortunately. But what can we do in the meantime to help them better manage their inner world? And then when we do that, their health improves. Basically, everything improves. Their relationships improve. Their work life improves, but their health also improves. They just start getting better outcomes. When someone is using the StellaCare tool in clinic, as you said, you've got a lot of these algorithms baked in. So is it that a screen pops up and there's a pick list or something and, and the, the care extender describes the patient and then the optimized intervention will appear? Yeah, that's it. It's actually even simpler than that. Like the, the, whoever the, let's say it's a nurse navigator, basically puts in the problem and it could be, it's a depression screener or anxiety screener, but it, it, it could be as simple as smoking, but the patient doesn't want to quit. So it's smoking is the behavior you want to change, but on a one to 10 scale, they're not interested in quitting. Even if they're not interested in quitting, we can still go spend five minutes and actually help that patient move, get closer to quitting smoking. Same with popping too many pills or losing weight. So the idea is that they basically, they go, they put the problem and they quantify what the problem is and then push a button and it spits out content. And it basically spits out like, do this and it gives sort of a cheat sheet. There's also something for the patient, like if you're doing a telemedicine session or a phone session that the patient can kind of see it from their smartphone 
And then there's an assignment so that the patient can kind of follow through the learning later. And then there's like a patient platform so that we can continue to give the patient some help in a way that they can hear it. And that's the important thing. I'm thinking very mercenarily, if that's a word. I, I have a tendency to make up words. <laughs> but if we're concerned about things which are typically regarded as quality indicators and which are measured, A1Cs, or right. for diabetes patients and keeping your patients with diabetes under control relative to population health, or managing other chronic conditions, making sure people are taking their blood pressure medication so blood pressures are, are under control at the population level or, or you know, the, the mm -hmm. usual suspects. I know sometimes that sometimes the fastest way home is the long way around. Like I can instantly see the value of, all right, someone needs to manage their diabetes. Let's teach them how to manage their diabetes. Like, you know, those things are, are totally interconnected. Whereas helping them with their insomnia or, or something like, like this, it's just, it just seems like it's disconnected at some level to managing diabetes outcomes. But what you're saying is, you know, you can give them as much education as you want, but it's not going to help unless these underlying causes are addressed. So good luck with that. This is what really needs to happen, even though it's not like super intuitive. Right. And again, remember, this is not with all the patients. It's with the 20 percent who aren't responding to the usual approach. So I think we should think of it as usual approach and then more advanced approach. And this, this would be more advanced approach. So the usual approach is diabetes. We give you the education on diabetes and you do what you need to do. So again, that works for the majority of patients. So what we're referring to is the 20% where that approach is just not working. So then what do you do? And so what I'm saying is that we have to start recognizing that when people don't take care of their health, it's not because they don't care about their health. It's not because they are dumb or they just are disinterested. It's basically that they're so overwhelmed. This is what we have found over the past seven years since we've been doing this program. What we have found is that they're so overwhelmed by other stuff going on in their life that everything, they're having problems in a lot of different areas. And healthcare is just one of the areas. What we found is that if you go and you spend 10 minutes with them, talking to them about something that they care about, and while you're doing that, you give them some little evidence-based interventions to better manage how they're kind of perceiving the world and, and actions that they're taking on a day-to-day -day basis, you can start moving the needle. What does that moving the needle look like? Like what kind of results have you derived from this approach with that 20% tough to impact cohort? What we found is that when we used it for mistreatments, people who should be coming to their treatments, it was over 30%, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it was very significant because it was with the 20%, because the people who were missing the treatments were the, the 20%. So that was pretty significant. Restating what you just said, of that 20%, lots of them were not showing up for their follow-up appointments. You instituted this program and you saw a 30% rise in the number of patients that were coming yeah. back for their... Yes. 
Yes, exactly. But something interesting we found, though, Stacey, that I think is really fascinating, and I'd really like people to start talking more about it, because to me, this is really the most interesting thing we found in the last couple of years. And that is when you start really working with the 20%. And essentially, what's going to happen with value-based care is that pretty soon, everyone's going to need to super focus on the 20% of the patients. And that is really, if you can move the needle on the 20%, it's significant. Patients basically can be divided up into kind of four different types of engagement styles. And that we found that everything has to be messaged according to the way the patient is engaging. So you can't just go approach patients in one uniform way. You really have to modify the way you talk to patients, how you communicate with them, and even some of the different interventions and how you approach things is quite different depending on uh, their style of engagement. The reason we stumbled upon this is I worked with a very large company and we were training 2,000 of their employees to use this clinical model. And what we found initially is we had trained thousands of people, but only 10% of their staff was using it with the patients that they should have been using the program with. So the staff on the ground were using the program, not with the 20%, but with the patients who could probably benefit, because quite frankly, anyone can kind of benefit from the program. But to really move the needle, you have to work with the 20%. So when I did a deep dive to figure out, this is interesting, why aren't they working with the 20%? What I found is that they're not working with the 20% because they're very challenging. Like sometimes the patients would have a blanket over their head. We would want the staff to go start working with the patient with a blanket over their head. And the staff would not necessarily say, no way, I'm not going to do it. But there would be different reasons why they couldn't do it. And we had to develop some clinical roundabouts so that the, actually the staff on the ground would start approaching these patients who need it. Because our instinct is to work with the kind of sweet, pleasant, cooperative patients, not the ones who have blankets on their heads. Obviously, people would gravitate to <laughs> patients which are lovely to work with as opposed to the ones where, you know, you're, you know you're walking into a situation. I thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Melissa. Oh, it was a joy. Thank you so much, Stacey. I appreciate your time. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week, the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.